Well, welcome to Veritas. I don't know if you guys can hear me or not. Hopefully you can. Uh, yeah, this is good. That's fine. If you don't know me, my name's Austin. I am one of the pastors here at The Crossing and one of the co-directors of the college ministry, Veritas. Graduated from Mizzou a long time ago. Started working for Veritas about 10 years ago. Love my job. Started when I was single and had hair. Now I'm bald and have three kids. So really glad that you've uh, decided to join us tonight. Hope to see you throughout the summer. I want to start off talking tonight about a guy named Todd Houston. Todd Houston had a mission. So he set out to try and climb the highest point in every state in 100 days. Okay, highest point in every state in 100 days. And when he started, uh, he encountered several obstacles. So the first happened a couple months before he began. He had a sponsor, team of sponsors that were uh, financially backing him. All of them backed out two months before he started. Very disappointed, but not devastated. He found some other financial sponsors, got everything together, and he started. Second obstacle happened on day 47. He's climbing Mount Hood in Oregon, or about to, and he gets word that two climbers had died on the mountain the day before. And so there was a lot of talk. Should he do it? Is it too dangerous? He called up an old climbing buddy and asked him to join him to help him climb up the terrain. He ended up doing it. Persevered. The last obstacle happened 13 years before he started this mission. And it happened when he lost his leg in a boating accident. See, Todd Houston was an amputee. And he did all of this, climbed the highest point in every state in, uh, in in 66 days. He beat the previous record by 35 days. It's an amazing accomplishment. Uh, He had to overcome a lot of obstacles to achieve that mission. And I love that story in general. It's awesome. Makes me feel a little bit uh, like, what am I doing here? But I I love his story too because I think it captures something of the story that all of us find ourselves in. You see, God has given his people an incredible mission. See, all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2, the first page of the Bible, we see that he created everything. He said it was good. And he gave Adam and Eve, the first people, the task of being stewards of that creation, of caring for it. He said they're supposed to be fruitful. They're supposed to multiply. They're supposed to have dominion over the earth. You see, they were God's representatives, spreading his glory and his kingdom of love, of justice, and mercy throughout the world. But then, if you know the story in Genesis 3, the serpent comes, and he tempts Adam and Eve, and they succumb to that temptation. They abandon God's mission, and they start pursuing their own mission, their own kingdom. And instead of love and justice and mercy being spread throughout the world, now what characterizes the world is the spreading of hate and injustice and racism and oppression and death and destruction and much more. All of this spread in the external world and it also spread in every human heart. But when that happened, God didn't give up. God did not give up on his mission. Instead, he decided to choose a group of people, the nation of Israel, to be a people that embodied and lived out what God wanted all along. The spread of this kingdom of love and justice and mercy. And he wanted it to spread to every person, to every nation, and to every human heart. They're supposed to be, Israel was supposed to be a people set apart, blessing the nations around them, making life better uh, for people, and thus giving them a taste of what life in a covenant relationship with God is really like. That was Israel's mission then, but it's the church's mission today. 
1 Peter 2.9, the Apostle Peter writes this. He says, you're a chosen people. So he's picking up on this language in the Old Testament. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. If you're here tonight and you claim to be a Christian, then that means we're on a mission together. We're supposed to, and God has called us to participate with him in the spreading of his kingdom, his kingdom of love and justice and mercy to every person, to every state, every nation, every heart. That's our calling. But just like Todd Houston faced those obstacles, so do Christians. Often the most troubling and serious obstacles, they're not the ones out there, outside of us, they're the ones inside. Now there's some troubling obstacles outside. Some troubling people, some troubling circumstances, absolutely. But the most serious ones we find in our heart. You see, the biggest obstacles are sin. The Apostle Paul captured the nature of this struggle in Romans chapter 7. I'm going to slow it down because you've got to slow it down to read this to understand it. It says, I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that's what I do. And so if I don't do... See, I gotta read it again. If I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. I agree that God's ways are good. And as it is, I, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. See, all too often our own sin is the biggest obstacle. You see, we want to live for God's mission. We know what we should want, and yet so often our sin prevents us from doing that. See, this summer, in an effort to remind ourselves of this mission that we are on together, we're going through the six-week series. It's called Enough Already. And each week we're going to explore an obstacle that prevents us from living out God's mission together. We're going to see how Jesus can bring healing and relief in that area over that obstacle. And then we're going to consider what life can look like if and when we fight against these obstacles. So tonight we're going to start the series off by uh, talking about the obstacle of perfectionism. So when I say perfectionism, what I mean is the pursuit of a state where nothing needs to be changed. Nothing at all. Flawlessness. Void of any sort of deficiency whatsoever. Earlier this year, the American Psychological Association, they published some new research exploring the rise of perfectionism in college students. So they, they interviewed and surveyed over 40,000 students what they found, maybe no surprise to you uh, or me, found that compared uh, to prior generations, today's students are harder on themselves, more demanding of others, and report higher levels of social pressure to be perfect, to be flawless, to be without deficiency. It's probably not a shock. My guess is that in some way or another, you all feel this pressure to pursue perfection and flawlessness and have zero deficiencies in your lives. We talk a lot about this. I just want to talk about two spheres, two areas in our lives where I think we see and feel this pressure the most. Here's the first one. We feel the pressure to pursue perfection in our performance. Perfection in our performance. A couple months ago, I grabbed lunch with a guy who was involved in Veritas for years. He's been working a job now for a couple of years just to hear how it's going. And he's working uh, for a firm that does human resources. He's an HR guy. And he was tasked with their firm's biggest client. He was the representative. Now, this client brought in about half the revenue of his firm. 
And so about a couple months into this, being assigned to this, he made an honest financial mistake. But it was a big mistake. So much so that this client was threatening to leave the firm. Now again, this is half of the income. And so his boss used to be very hands-off, was very friendly uh, with him. It's 180 change. was very angry with him. Sent lots of passive-aggressive emails. Kind of talked over him, belittled him. Same with his coworkers, right? They were passive-aggressive to him, sometimes openly hostile. Right now he's in the process of looking for a new job just because the pressure to be perfect is ruining his life. He made an honest mistake, but now he feels that pressure to be perfect. Kevin Love, if you follow basketball, you know, earlier this year, he had a panic attack in the middle of a game. And he talked about part of the reason was this pressure to perform night in and night out to be perfect on the court and to not be able to show any sort of weakness whatsoever. And so that pressure that Kevin Love feels, the, the pressure that this guy who I was meeting with feels, that's, I think, what a lot of us feel in our jobs, in our internships, in our classes. Maybe not to that degree, right? The stakes may not be quite as high, but it's there nonetheless. See signs of this pressure in school. A lot of time and effort devoted to crafting the perfect resume. I get some emails from you and it's like a page of just every single thing you've ever done. It's fine, but man, there's a lot of work devoted to crafting that resume. There's classes you take. There's jobs that people have to help people build resumes. It's not wrong to build resumes, but gosh, that's just the air you breathe and it breathe and it's 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 a lot of pressure to be perfect. We see it in study habits. So this was really interesting. Uh, according to the National Center for Health and Research, the use of study drugs like Adderall, over the past two decades, they have increased, the sale of them has increased by 9 million percent. 9 million percent. Now, people need drugs sometimes to concentrate. My son, he's five, he's been diagnosed with ADHD. I would not be surprised if one day he will be taking some sort of stimulant. That's fine. But the study explains that half of the 10,000 college students that were surveyed, half of them were asked to sell the medication to peers and friends. These are students who had no learning learning disabilities whatsoever. They want those drugs. Why? I think it's safe to say that more and more they're doing this because they feel the pressure to be perfect, feel the pressure to perform. So let me ask you a question. Whatever that is for you, in your job, in your internship, in your school, ask yourself this. If you don't meet the standard you set for yourself, whether it's the GPA, the internship, whatever, if you don't get that, are you disappointed? It's okay to be disappointed. Or are you devastated? Does life totally stop? Are you going to lose sleep? Are you going to lose an appetite? Are you disappointed? Are you devastated? If you're devastated more often than not, then that's a sign that you and I are caught up in the pursuit of perfection in our performance. And if we're not careful, if we play this game more and more, the more we play it, we're going to crash and burn. It's going to crush us. We can never be at rest. You're never going to be able to get off the hamster wheel. You're never going to be able to stop and help anybody because they're going to be a threat to your success and hinder your performance. Of course, it's not just performance in school or jobs or work. It's, we're tempted to pursue perfection in our relationship with God as well. In the New Testament book of Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes this. Galatians 3, he says, Are you so foolish After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? See, these Christians in this church, they began their relationship with Jesus by faith. They started off well, but something happened. Something changed. And they began to feel the pressure to be perfect in their relationship with God. They started to believe that they had to perform. 
in order to be accepted and loved and valued by God. That's what that phrase, finished by means of the flesh, means. But as Paul said, that's foolish. That's a foolish pursuit because it's going to crush us. Hebrews 10 says this, when the people, talking about the Old Testament Israelites, when they made sacrifices, there's a reminder of sins every year. For it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so in the Old Testament, God commanded his people, commanded the Israelites to make animal sacrifices because that was the means by which God could remain in a relationship with Israel. You see, God made this covenant with Israel, the promise to always be with them no matter what. And yet he's a holy God. He's perfect, sinless. And he's entered a relationship with a sinful, broken people. How can that happen? Well, animal sacrifices was the solution. And yet, as this verse is telling us, these were always temporary. They were never able to fully take care of the problem of sins. More importantly, that's not what pleased God. God was never pleased with these sacrifices in and of themselves. Psalm 51 says, You do not delight in sacrifice, God, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Had an old roommate years ago. His name's Andy. Uh, he, he told me something one morning that literally changed my world, rocked it completely. So uh, we both worked for Veritas. We were living back then. They had the Veritas guy's house, my, Veritas guy's house. myself, Kyle, Andy. We all lived together. And there was a Saturday morning. Uh, slept in until 10 a.m. I miss those days. Uh, woke up at 10, trying to figure out what to do. And Andy suggested, hey, let's grab breakfast and let's go watch a movie. It was on like at 11 or something. And I said, hey, that's actually not going to work for me because I, I need time to read my Bible. You know, hashtag blessed, look at me, all that. I need time to read my Bible. That was a big deal for me because I became a Christian two years earlier. And in that time, I bet I missed one or two days of reading my Bible. And so when I told Andy this, that I needed time to read my Bible, he said, well, just skip it. It's not like God will love you any less. And I I remember where I was standing in the living room, and I stopped. I went, oh my gosh, he's right. It doesn't matter if I read my Bible or not. God's not going to love me any more if I read my Bible or any less if I don't read my Bible. And it was at that moment that I realized that I was pursuing perfection in my relationship with God. I felt the pressure to be perfect and flawless. I thought I had to read my Bible, had to do all these good things if I wanted to still be loved by God. What's that for you? And what's that, what's that sacrifice that maybe consciously or unconsciously like it was for me that you believe you have to do in order for God to accept you? Maybe it's reading your Bible. Maybe it's just like me. Maybe you have to pray before you go to bed. You have to pray for those people. You have to come to Veritas. You have to serve or you have to lead a small group or you got to do whatever it is. See, we all feel that pressure to perform and be perfect in our relationship with God. And, and sometimes churches can make this worse, intentionally or unintentionally. Sometimes churches can give off the impression that the most important thing to do is to appear like you have it all together, appear like you're flawless. Sometimes church can be like an all-star team. It can feel that way. You got to show up on a Sunday morning. You got to come to a small group. You got to put all your crap behind you. You got to shove it in a closet door and act like, look, I'm good. How you doing? Oh, I'm good. Yeah, it's good. I say it all the time. And every time I do it, I'm like, well, yeah, okay. You know, this makes it, it makes it feel like it's an all-star team. And if you're like me, I don't always feel like that. I don't always feel like that. We're not fooling anybody, though. We're not fooling people around us, not fooling our friends, definitely not fooling God. This pursuit of perfection, it's exhausting. 
It's not worth it because we're never going to be good enough. We can never live up to what God wants. Pressure to be perfect in our performance, but there's also pressure to be perfect in our physical appearance. Guys, I know this pressure affects us too, but on the whole, women, I think, experience this pressure a lot more than men. And there's a lot of things that need to be said here. Can't say all of the things that need to be said, but there's a lot to say here. So it might take a while, so buckle up, and that's okay. It's all right, because I think it needs to be said. So I spoke with several women over the last few weeks about where they feel this pressure, why they feel this pressure. So thanks to those of you who shared with me. Let's start with the rise of plastic surgery rates in the U.S. 2014, doctors performed over 15 million cosmetic procedures. That's four years ago, so I wouldn't be surprised if it went up. That was a 13% increase from 2011 and double as many procedures in the year 2000. Americans spend almost $13 billion on cosmetic procedures. Liposuction and breast augmentation are the top two. Cheaper, though, cheaper non-surgical procedures, they're also becoming more common. So doctors, they perform more than five times as many non-surgical procedures as they used to. So, for example, doctors, they gave 3.6 million Botox injections. 1.7 shots of gel fillers like Juvederm. I had no idea what that was, so I started looking around. Right smack dab on their website, everyone will notice, no one will know. That's a tagline. Everyone will notice, no one will know. And there's the influence of social media. And before you tune out, I know you guys have heard a lot about the dangers of social media, some good things, some bad things. I'm not here to crap on anybody. I'm not here to judge anybody. I don't want to throw anybody under the bus, but I want to show, I want to talk about it because it really illustrates the impact that social media has on our lives and how it increases the pressure to be perfect in our appearance. So here we go. Cosmopolitan.com. They recently surveyed a thousand men and women about their selfie habits. Selfie habits. Here's the, here's the findings. About 50% of women take two to five selfies before they get just the right one. For guys, that number is almost 60%. About 30% of women, one in three, they take about six to 10 to get just the right one. For guys, that drops down to 13%. And one in five take 11 or more selfies to get just the right one. Guys, this is 13%. Now, that's just to get the right shot. Then you got the time to edit it. And according to the survey, they combine times for men and women. 44% of people take one to three minutes to edit that selfie before they post it. One in four take four to six minutes to edit, and one in five take 10 or more minutes to edit that selfie before you put it up there. It's a lot of time spent trying to be perfect. Tony Rinke wrote a book called 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. If you haven't read that, you want a good summer read, man, I would really recommend it. It doesn't take too long. It's great. And he tells the story of a woman named Essena. I think that's how you pronounce her name. Essena was a model, maybe Essena. Essena was a model who made her fame on Instagram. But eventually the pressure to look perfect and to be flawless was too much. And so she decided to get off of social media completely. And she talked about her experience. Now there's a longer quote up here, but it's worth reading. So follow along with me. She says, over-sexualization, perfect food photos, perfect travel vlogs. It is textbook on how I got famous. This life consumed me. I spent ages 12 to 16 wishing I was someone else. Then I spent ages 16 to 19 constantly molding myself, editing and self-promoting the best parts of my life, which turned into a massive career based on numbers and how I looked aesthetically. But then she talked about how she started to crack and be crushed by this pressure. She goes on. 
I'm over this celebrity culture and obsession. It's silly and for the most part, internally lonely and fake. Being born into this screen-dominant age, we're taught to mold ourselves in order to gain the most social validation, likes, views, followers across social media, all that. I've simply taken myself out of the sculpting studio. I didn't want to look to others for how I should speak, how I should live, speak, and create. I was living a paradox of conditional self-love and constant self-hate. Basically, my self-worth relied on social approval. Messina was crushed by this pursuit. Jen Wilkin, she weighs in on the effects of the pursuit of perfection in women. She says, the expectation of physical perfection hits modern females early and often. In middle school, girls cut themselves to deal with the pressures of conformity to the ideal. In middle age, women do too, but allow the surgeon to hold the knife. Increasingly, physical perfection is the legacy of womanhood in our culture. Pressure to be perfect in our appearance is felt right here in Veritas too. I asked a few women uh, who, who were, have been involved in Veritas just about the pressures they feel. Two thoughts here. One, one woman said, I know the body parts that my friends don't like about themselves. Me personally, I cannot look at pictures that girls post on social media because I know how they will affect me and what that will do to my self-image. Another woman, African-American woman, she says the media tells us where to be skinny, have perfect skin, straight hair, blonde is better, big butts, small waist, slim arms, etc. The media promotes a whitewashed image of beauty. They color correct black women's faces to make them lighter. Beauty products are often promoted by white women who fit this cookie cutter mold. All that to say, there's immense pressure on our culture and particularly on women to appear perfect, to appear flawless, to fit the mold of perfection, whatever that looks like. So why do we do it? Why do we all pursue perfection and flawlessness in our performance and in our physical appearance? That article at the beginning about the rising rates of perfectionism in college students had a great line. It said, today's young people are competing with each other in order to meet societal pressures to succeed. And here they go. They feel perfectionism is necessary in order to feel safe, socially connected, and have worth. Turns out, this pursuit of perfection is connected to our identity. We pursue perfection because we think that in order to feel safe and accepted and valued and told we're good enough and smart enough, whatever, that we have to be perfect. We have to be flawless. We can't have any sort of deficiency or weakness whatsoever. That makes sense why this pressure is so alluring and so captivating on the one hand, and yet on the other, it's suffocating and it's drowning. You see, when we pursue perfection on our own, we're by ourselves. And when we're by ourselves, we become the center of our universe, the center of our story. And if we're at the center of our story, it doesn't work. If you've been trying to live like that long enough, you know it doesn't work. We were never meant to be on our own. It leaves us stressed out, anxious, depressed, and alone. It doesn't work. It's a battle worth losing. Because we're made for a bigger story. We're made for something bigger than just ourselves. A guy named Richard Winter, he, he wrote a, a book, Perfecting Ourselves to Death. Again, if you want a good book, summer read, check it out. He really hits on this with this quote. He says this, The pursuit of perfection leaves us asking the question, is there anything substantial behind my performance and appearance? Is there a core of personality and identity that is given? Something that's consistent throughout my life? If there's no essential self, if my identity's fluid, 
that I'm judged only by my appearance and performance because that's all there is. But, but if there's a personal God who created us, then the heart of the issue is not what others or even we think of who we are. What really matters is what God thinks of us. Don't pursue perfection, but pursue Jesus. Pursue Jesus. If and when we pursue Jesus, that changes everything for one simple reason. Jesus has made us perfect. Jesus has made us perfect. Hebrews 10, verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Through Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, he's given us perfection. The thing that we're killing ourselves to get. The things that we're running so hard and pursuing so hard to get. He's given it to us. It's acceptable and possible. Thanks to that sacrifice, we're new creations. And what this means now is that when God looks at you, he's pleased. He sees the sin. He sees you not performing your best. He sees you without makeup. He sees you with those imperfections and those flaws, and he's pleased. He says, yep, good enough for me. Come on. Despite those flaws and imperfections and deficiencies and sins were valued and loved and accepted only because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And so to have faith in Jesus, not 100% faith, not a perfect faith, but 51%, just two steps forward, one step back, a little bit more than yesterday. Sometimes we don't have it, but in the, on the end, leaning towards more than not, it means that you and I are perfect in God's eyes. And he's the only opinion that really matters because that's the one that we were meant to get approval from. Only true because of Jesus' sacrifice. And so because we're perfect, motivates us to grow in holiness. It's the first implication. Because we're perfect, it motivates us to grow in holiness. Let's go back to Hebrews 10, second half of that verse. For by a single offering is perfected for, a, for all time those who are being sanctified. That's my alarm, but that wasn't my fault. Okay. Yes, we're perfect in God's eyes. And at the very same time, we still need to be sanctified. We still need to be made holy. This is the tension of the Christian life. This is the tension, the story that we live in. So let's do a little story here to draw this out. Imagine that you get a note in the mail that says you've just been awarded and given $10 million in cash. Only thing is you've got to go to Fort Knox, Tennessee to get it. Great. So on the one hand, that money's yours. It belongs to you. But on the other hand, in that very moment, you don't have it. You've got to make travel plans to go to Fort Knox to get it. That's exactly what the picture of growing in holiness looks like. On the one hand, we have been given perfection by Jesus and who we are. It's ours. And yet, on the other hand, we don't fully experience that right now. It hasn't come to completion yet. We've got to travel a ways. We've got a road to go down before we get it. But notice why we grow in holiness. We grow because of what God has already done. Because we're perfect, that's why we grow. We go to Fort Knox to get the money because we know 100% it's there in the bank. We got a letter proving it. We don't go going, gosh, I hope uh, we get $10 million when we get there, you know. It's, it's, it's a done deal. That's how it is in our growth in holiness. And so now we can be a person. We can be a community who is becoming more and more like Jesus. We can resist the pressure from the culture around us to fit uh, into that mold of being perfect. And instead of that, we can grow in character that looks more and more like Jesus. We can grow in the fruit of the Spirit. 
We can grow in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We grow out of gratitude and love for what God has already done for us, not out of fear that we're somehow going to lose something. So because we're perfect, we grow in holiness. And because we're perfect, that means we shoot for faithfulness, not perfection. Faithfulness, not perfection. Colossians chapter 3 says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So because we're perfect now, we can actually enjoy the work we do. We can enjoy a job we have. We can enjoy schooling because there's not so much writing on our performance. It frees us from exhaustion and overwork that's so often accompanied by trying to be perfect here. So yeah, work hard in school. Study, learn, do your job well, but do it for God. Do it for the Lord, as that verse says. Remember, work hard and remember the mission that we're all on. We're blessing the nations, blessing the people around us. Our lives are on display for everybody to see. And remember that God is using your work and my work to spread that kingdom of love and justice and mercy. Quick illustration, I love this. At one point in the Gospels, John the Baptist, he's got these disciples, he's got followers, and then Jesus comes on the scene. And John the Baptist's followers come to him frantically and say, John, John, there's this other guy, Jesus, and everybody's leaving us, and I don't know what to do, what should we do? And John goes, hey, hey, it's fine. He says this verse, he says, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. He must increase, and I must decrease. What would happen in our classes, in our jobs, in our families, in our friendships, in our world, if we took that mentality, if we brought that heart into everything we did, Jesus must increase, I must decrease. His glory, not mine. His kingdom, not mine. Striving for faithfulness in our appearance. I can't say it any better than a middle-aged woman at the crossing told me. She said, well, you got to do the best with what you got. (laughs) Got to do the best with what you got. What she meant by that was to be faithful with the physical body that God has given us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. There might be no more countercultural statement than the reality that our physical bodies do not belong to us. It's true. They're not ours. They belong to God. He has given them to us to be used for his purposes. And so the question is, what are we going to do with what we got? How will we, how will we use them to further God's kingdom, to further his mission? You see, physical beauty is not the problem. We can and we should declare that someone is beautiful because God made them beautiful. That's a great thing. But if we're the ones being called beautiful, let's be sure not to build our identity on that. And the other thing, and I'm actually, I I did not think about this, but a couple women uh, said this. I'm thankful that they enlightened me of the point. We need to be wise and thoughtful about how we talk about physical beauty with and to other people. There's a woman uh, in Veritas, the way she said it was, don't comfort people by only saying how physically beautiful they look. Tell them that, that's fine, but don't let that be the most important and the most often compliment that you give. Instead, be quick to talk maybe about some inner character qualities or about how God made you beautiful in other ways. Again, Jen Wilkin, she, she says this, she suggested fasting for body talk in general. 
in one of her blog posts, she wrote, you know, hit the gym, eat the diet, run the race, you run six miles, but just stop talking about it. Choose compliments that spur women to pursue that which lasts instead of that which certainly does not. Someone comments on your own shape, say thanks, and change the subject. Apply the discipline you use to work out to controlling your tongue. She says, if we do this for our sisters, by the grace of God, we could begin a legacy of womanhood that celebrates character over carb avoidance, godliness over glamour. Again, not saying that we should never talk about what physical bodies look like, but what I am saying, and I think the point is fair, is that we need to be mindful of how we talk about physical, physical bodies. So to be a Christian is to be made perfect in God's eyes, thanks to Jesus' sacrifice. And because of that, now we pursue faithfulness instead of perfection. Thomas Edison failed a thousand times before he invented the light bulb. James Dyson, before he invented the bagless vacuum, took him 15 years and 5,127 prototypes to get it right. If you follow Elon Musk, CEO of SpaceX, they recently posted a, a short video of all their failures in trying to get to space. Here it is. Let's watch it. It's kind of entertaining. She on. <laughs> and it's starting over. Let's watch it again. No, let's not. Okay. You know, as the worship team starts making their way forward, you know, the, these men, they weren't pursuing perfection. If they were, they would have stopped after the first one. There'd be no light bulb. There'd be no bagless vacuum. There'd be no SpaceX and a continued pursuit into space. No, these men were pursuing something better. Faithfulness to a task, a mission. They had their hearts and their minds fixed on something much better than perfection. So too with us. You see, to be a Christian, to fight to have faith in Jesus is to recognize that we're in a bigger story. It's to devote ourselves, devote ourselves to God's mission rather than our own. You see, he's given us a task and a calling to be his means of blessing to the people around us. He wants us to be faithful and not perfect. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, we can do that imperfectly, two steps forward, one step back, slowly, just like those men, Edison, Dyson, and Musk. And if and when we do this, the world's going to take notice. Columbia is going to take notice. Mizzou, Morbilly, Columbia College, wherever you go to school, they're going to take notice. The most attractive and powerful thing that our culture needs to hear, and more importantly, that they need to see, is how we react when we fail. Not if we fail, but when we fail, when we're not perfect. This is the only way to defeat perfectionism. Lose the battle. Give up and pursue a better story. Pursue faithfulness. Pursue Jesus. Let me pray.
Father, we thank you for sending Jesus, what you did on that cross 2,000 years ago, death and resurrection made us perfect. I'm so thankful that now you see us, not in our imperfections and sins, but you see us as you see Jesus, perfect, righteous, accepted, valued. Lord, with that, move us on. Lord, we remember that as we take up your mission and your calling. Help us to give up the fight of perfectionism. Give us grace as we continue to struggle and grow. Help us to move forward, trusting you on your mission for your purpose. It's your name we pray. Amen.